Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my air drumming co-host Teos Avadia. Hey Teos, <laughs> how how are the hi-hats sounding? Oh man, really crisp. <laughs> yes, that's good. Well, hopefully we will be just as crisp as your air hi-hats uh, as we get into this week's episode. We need we need to have our Mike Shea sports moment. So what Indeed. did you learn today about gaming from sports? I mean, so I was watching the World Cup this last weekend, and there was a discussion about how England had kind of uh, over the last several World Cups has, has sort of gotten better and better at functioning as a team, despite all these intense rivalries when you bring everybody from the country together to play as a World Cup team. And they said that this year what's been particularly effective and really helped them was the fact that they play werewolf as a way to come together and break down barriers. And I thought that was pretty awesome. 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 So, you know, gaming, it's it's all it's all over. It's even it's in, a, in sports. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with no further ado, let's get into our tweet bag, toot bag, Patreon missive section. This week we have one new question and one old question that we failed to answer last time so first the new question this is from southern wilds on twitter uh, how regularly do DD designers play the game i would assume it is greater than the average 5e player do you think that could have a negative impact on the design of 1D? &D? lots of players i know aren't anywhere near exhausting 5e and I think these are all good questions, although they may not be as interrelated as as one might think. So first of all, uh, I think D&D designers, if we're talking about Wizards of the Coast employees, do play quite regularly. Mm -hmm. um, while I haven't talked to the designers recently, I know that designers in the past have talked about playing lunchtime games or after work games. And this is above and beyond like playtesting. So they have a regular game at the office and they often will have a regular game, you know, a home game, and then will play at work as 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 they can with playtesting. Yeah. So how often do they do it? Probably at least as much as the average player and maybe more. What do you think? Uh, yes, but <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think that's true. I think that there, there have been, I'm pretty sure that there have been some years, um, where, and, and especially I'd say around parts of third edition where what I heard was that people there were not really familiar with the own, with the rules they'd written. And, and that happens to some extent normally, right? You can't know everything. No person knows all rules, no matter what part of it you've written. Um, but but really sort of a lack of kind of understanding of how the world plays your game uh, mm -hmm. was not an unfair characterization. And to the point where during the fourth edition days, they sort of began to see that this problem existed, I think, as, as they interacted with fans and said, let's change this up. Let's play the games more often. Let's make sure we play both our game and other people's games so we know what's going on. And, and, and that became more of a culture. I don't know what it looks like today. Um, I think, and I worry that some of the games are played in ways that may not resemble what the average game is like right. to which you'd say, how do you even know what the average game looks like? And, and I, I don't know, you'd have to run around playing with people that aren't your right. friends. Right. And they don't have the time for that. Um, 
there's also this question of just D&D designers in general. How often can you play? Can you, can I, right? Um, there was a time when we were writing that ink book, there was a time when I almost canceled my home game because mm -hmm. I was just really against the wall time wise. But I thought to myself, no, I think I really need this. And in fact, I did. It invigorated all of my writing and allowed me to play test various of the downtime rules and, and things like that. And so it ended up being really critical, but I almost canceled it due to lack of time. And I think that's a real issue for a lot of designers. I think there are a lot of designers out there who aren't reading the latest books, aren't playing constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I am technically a D&D &D designer full time, and I have a once every other week home game where we play 5e D&D. &D. I will take part in play tests occasionally, maybe once a month, where I'll get online especially and play test something. I'm signed up to play a non-D&D &D play test game tomorrow night. Uh, so, you know, as often as I possibly can with the understanding that I also have a life outside of D&D. Of yeah. &D. Right. But I cannot underestimate, overestimate, it is very important <laughs> mm -hmm. if you are a game designer to play with different people, play different games. Don't just get stuck in that rut of playing yeah. your home game. As Teo said, you know, during third edition, the only reason I am where I am in my career is I was part of the role-playing game association, the RPGA, which is now called the Adventures League. And I ran hundreds, if not thousands of game for thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. And I learned that there is no average D&D player or average D&D game because it is such a uh, unique game. Yeah. And in that time that Teos is talking about, I would sit at tables where Wizards of the Coast game designers were running games and we would do things and they would say, you can't do that. That's not what the rules say. And we would pull out our player's handbook and say, show us where that says that in these rules that you wrote and they couldn't and yeah. so therefore they were learning at uh, the table <laughs> at the table via this was their play test right yeah. uh after the fact unfortunately but this was their play test so it's very important to do that now will playing a lot have a negative impact on the design of the game i think no i think the opposite i think the more you play the more you learn, mm -hmm. not only about the game yeah. itself, the text of it and the mechanics of it, but of your consumer base, your customer base, your fan base, and what they want and how they use this thing you're creating. Would yeah. you agree? Absolutely. The more you play, the better. Uh, you, you can't play too much. Uh, and the more that you play different types of games with your game, the better you will be position to understand how to do things right yeah so the the statement that followed the question do you think that could have a negative impact on the design of 1d and d was lots of players i know aren't anywhere near exhausting 5e and that seems to me to make the correlation between playing a lot and mm -hmm. therefore wanting a new edition of the game I don't think that is a you know causal statement. I don't think the designers say, "Oh, we've played so much Five E that we're sick of it, so we want to make a new game." Yeah. the The decision to make a new game, make a new edition, make a product, is generally far, far, far above the pay grade of the people who are designing the game. Right. Right. Um, and, and as we, yeah. 
it, I think designers sort of train themselves when they have that kind of a job to you're, you're just in a creation mode and you're not really thinking, you know, does the world need another subclass? Um, because someone's saying four subclasses come in this book and so you work on that and you do that. Um, where I will say that that maybe there could be this kind of an effect is that when you maybe are, you know, in your silo doing your your work, you may think of the game from an expertise perspective, right? Expert player rather than new player. And so what you may forget mm -hmm. is what it's like to be a new player picking up your game and the many ways that can happen, right? And a, a trick I like doing to my brain is whenever I walk into a gaming store, which is often, I go to the D&D &D or just the general role-playing game uh, shelves, and I imagine I'm, I know nothing. Mm -hmm. What does that look like, right? And sometimes it can be really interesting, right? Because, you know, one of the most colorful books could be a fourth edition book, mm -hmm. you know? So if you're just going in there like, I want to try this D&D &D thing, what do you pick up, right? Is the starter set an obvious intro? Is the player's handbook mm -hmm. the obvious core book? Those kinds of questions, I think, are really fascinating. Or does Tasha's look like the first book you should buy, right? And and what does that right. mean? Those kinds of questions are really good to ask, and and it's we have to you know hit ourselves over the head to remind ourselves to do that. I think. Right. It uh, to 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 just put a final stake in in this uh, what Deus is talking about. If you want to pick up sewing, and you go to a crafting store, you could probably find among all of the yarn and the needles and everything, a how to knit book, <laughs> yeah, right? Knitting for dummies. And, and that's great. Uh, does that exist in these gaming stores? That's why those initial box sets are so important, especially if you walk into a target or a Walmart or one of those sorts of stores where the only thing they're going to have is that. And that's what wizards of the coast wants, right? They want people buying those box sets, a more, specialized gaming store might just assume that their customers are doing that and that's why wizards will will want to incentivize stores to have special areas for new players or be on call to answer the question for people that walk in um, whereas yeah. a lot of gaming stores i'm familiar with don't do that they just they just want to sell whatever you know magic cards that are going to make them the most money mm -hmm. and they don't give that sort of uh help as often as maybe they could or should right right and do their but, staff even yeah. know right <laughs> exactly yeah exactly I mean, that's a fun so, thing where you know you can do it for any game right like i'll, I'll walk in for my you know in the sun i've for my for my son i've done in the past where i go into a game store and i see a bunch of booster packs of some collectible card game and i say which mm -hmm. ones should i get and they may totally know or they may not know, right? But it's just right. it's just noise. I'm just seeing a row of noise. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're going to talk about this more Southern Wilds when we talk about the news where we had a fireside chat from the Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast presidents. But the question that we didn't get to last week was from uh, Bram Baker. It was a question about different schools of spells and and what that means. So he, uh, Bram asked, with the new playtest material, spell schools seem to become more important. Are spell schools a boon to one D and D, or an artifact that needs to be replaced with divine, primal, and arcane? So I, I didn't 
I haven't studied the one D&D playtest packet as much as some have. So I haven't noticed that they're that the schools are more or less important than they previously have been. But they've always been sort of important for game mechanical reasons. Uh, so spellless, I don't think are going to replace spell schools because the schools are a tool that you can use in game design. So a wizard subclass might be evoker or illusionist or enchanter, and then they can use those spell schools to power their abilities. Uh, a race, or sorry, an ancestry might um, mm-hmm. might have yes, yeah, species might have a uh, advantage on saving throws against illusions. Mm-hmm. So you need illusions in order to do that. So the, these spell schools complicate the game but hopefully they don't overcomplicate the game and they yeah. become a useful tool. Uh, so that's why you still see those schools there. And that's why I don't think you're going to have them go away. I had a similar thought at, at one point reading over something and, and I remember thinking like, well, maybe we don't need to know whether it's necromancy or conjuration. And and then I realized, no, it really does. It plays this role, right? There are those times when you want to be able to say, these types of spells, right? I get a bonus or I'm, I, I mm-hmm. don't worry about them or whatever, right? I'm immune to enchantment, whatever. Um, so, it, so it is useful to, to put them into these kinds of silos. Uh, also, they, they tend to live sort of in the background and, and, and I don't think cause too much trouble. Probably the biggest trouble is just dispel ma- or, or detect magic where, you know, mm-hmm. the, the player will say, what school? And, and it's a fun DM test as to whether you can remember right. what all the schools are and how to describe them, right? It's it's worth a little cheat sheet if, if, if you're like me and forget things like this. Um, yeah. the, the other question to this is is these spell lists, right? And and what 1D&D does that's really fascinating is it takes away the idea of having a wizard spell list or a cleric spell list in the player's handbook and instead says divine or arcane or primal. And that is... On one hand, great because, you know, this list can be smaller, but it's not great because you then have to create caveats. And mm. and that's what we see in the one D&D package, right? It'll say you get divine, or really the bard was probably the best one where it would say, you know, arcane, but uh, also you get these spells, right? Because they have to throw some healing back in or give it a healing feature to make up for that. And and that's where it shows its, it's sort of shaky standing, um, yeah, I think what they want to be able to do in the future is to say, you know, here's a new divine spell. And then we all know it goes onto the list. But but I, it's still crud. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't personally like it. I find it it's a little too ill fitting. And I think it'll create more work and confusion th- than bring yeah. us benefits. So, right. I mean, it. this is this is it, one of the main cruxes of game design is, you know, you want to simplify but you yeah. don't want to oversimplify. Uh, and if you do simplify later, you can't dig into these, these things that you've created to make an elegant solution to something down the line. Uh, so, you know, the, I always say to myself, let's see if we can simplify this mechanic. Let's see if we can simplify this. But sometimes I I end up simplifying myself out of something that could be much cooler and and even easier to use than something else that I end up having to create to fill in the void that that I left behind by simplifying. Yeah. 
So I think that's what we've seen. There have been just enough tweaks to try to like make it fit that I go, I don't think this is a good tool, but Mm -hmm. we'll see. Right. Right. And, and if you oversimplify and then have to make 10,000 exceptions to, to your rules, it, it ends up defeating the original purpose. So um, great question, Bram. Thank you for asking. Now we will head into our news and commentary section where we have some fun things to discuss. Uh-huh. First, let's talk about Wizards hiring a new D&D creative lead. This is actually called the Head of Creative for Dungeons & Dragons, who will lead the franchise with the goal of growing an audience and revenue worldwide. The role manages the game design, world building, and content team for the core IP, as well as managing and guiding relationships with teams creating digital expressions of the game. And that was just the first paragraph of this help wanted sort of ad. And uh, the first thing I thought, Teos, was, oh, this would be so cool. And boy, do I not want this job. You know, that's what most of my friends said. And I had the opposite feeling where, where I looked at this list and I'm looking at it now and I went, oh, this would be fun, <laughs> which I think shows where I am in my day job career, where these are the kinds of yeah. sort of tasks that I sometimes have. But um, but it's hard. And we've seen this job be hard over the years. Right. I mean, uh, uh, Mike Merles, I guess, had it, you know, before that Bill Slavisic, um uh, Nathan Stewart played the role for a while, though maybe not as, as closely as these tasks uh, are assigned. Um, and, and he sort of became a, a VP from that, from his role that he was playing. Uh, Ray Winninger was let go. You know, he played this role uh, probably closer than, than most people in terms of what these activities are. And, and so now they want to bring in someone new. Uh, it's not a VP position. It's so it's always interesting with, you know, titles matter to a lot of people. You know, what is head of creative? It's, you know, it's not a executive position. It's something below that. Um, mm-hmm. And it has a lot of tasks that are that are big deal that, that are actually fairly executive sounding in terms of what what's there. Um, yeah. but, but but also some some lower kind of level managerial levels. Um, but you're you're certainly not supposed to, as in some previous versions of TSR and Wizards, where where the job was also designing, right? This mm-hmm. is this is leading, this is monitoring, this is making sure that the executives are getting what they need out of the team, yeah. and that the team's getting what it needs out of itself. Uh, yeah, it's vital. So whoever takes this, right. I mean, it's, a, it's it's it couldn't be a more important. It's it's probably the most important job that Wizards could have the right person for, right? Um, right. And a fascinating challenge for whoever takes this on. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those positions where, right, there, there are certain personality types that, that work well for different jobs. And, right, you can have a totally type A, type A plus person working on the rules and they're right down there in the mechanics and they're making sure everything ticks with clockwork precision. And then you have sort of more, right, personality uh having to work well with others and take advice and and be able to give bad news to people or stand up for something that you know is right against against people who may not understand what's best for the game and this is like all of the above yeah this is one of those people where 
you need to know what's going on on the creative side, not just on like world building, but also on the actual game design and game mechanics, but also turn around to be able to, you know, explain this not only to the executives at your company, but maybe with partners who are going to be using the game in a certain way. And it's, it's very similar to what I do now without the high stakes of having, right, two, ten, a hundred million fans ready to yell at you when things go wrong. Uh, so it's, uh, well, I, yeah, I, think I wish, it's a position I wish that, someone well. Yeah, I wish someone well, too. I, it's a position that, that I think you have to forget about the fans. Like I remember when Mike Merles was was named. Uh, you know, people were saying things like, you know, one of us and 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 because he started with, you know, RPGA and third party design and things like that. And I think he wanted to sort of still be connected to the fans in many ways. But but I think it, it at that point, you have to step away. Right. And and even these days, I think the toxicity on Twitter and any designer has to do that. Right. You have to step away. You can't you can't be the person you were before. Um, and but in this case, especially you have to focus on the creative team and mm-hmm. and how they intersect with all the other departments and whether that's healthy right is the team healthy are the connection points healthy is everything aligned and then they're yeah. gonna they want you to measure that right so you've got to be able to measure all of those performance indicators to see how the the, the game is progressing for a brand that is nowhere close to a billion dollars but they want to be a billion be a billion dollars right and, and that's a a, a, a touchy an important point for us fans because we want someone who will protect that team mm-hmm. and and take care of them to make sure that they continue to be relevant and important right there's that whole like comic book thing where the movies can overshadow the comic books but you still want and need great comic books with great ideas and happy people working on them can you do that right over time that's mm-hmm. that's a tall order yeah and that transitions very nicely into our next bit of news which is Hasbro president Chris Cox's fireside chat. So I, we need to thank Dave Rosser, who is DAR junior on the socials uh, for not only keeping the community informed about these things, but for being such a positive voice in the community. And uh, it's his reporting on EN world that helped us uh, find this information. And from my end, I want to thank Scipio, who often helps break down financial disclosure type information like this. Uh, also provided us with a breakdown uh, and and uh, written transcript, which is great. Okay. So what did this fireside chat entail? So probably the reason that this happened is because Bank of America, as we reported a few weeks ago, downgraded Hasbro stock based on a an investment firm claiming that Wizards of the Coast was eroding Magic the Gathering's long-term card values, <laughs> and therefore people would stop buying them, and, and so on and so on. Well, so let's Hasbro t- was downgraded. Let's touch on that quickly because you know the idea is you're printing so many cards that collectors give up, right? Right. Uh, and and they they start thinking, well, there's no value in this. I I can't, you know, if I have a ancient Black Lotus and you're just going to reprint a version of it, even if it's not the same, you've eroded my value, and so I can't I can't. Um, count on what I have, on what I'm paying for, right? And the answer in this fireside chat was sort of, we don't care about the secondary market. Right. And we print to demand. So 
as long as people, you know, we are going to print the number of cards that people buy. And if people aren't buying them, we print less. Um, that was a fascinating answer for the magic side mm -hmm. and made me wonder, and how does that translate to the D&D side as well? Yeah. And, and I mean, that was my first, that was my second thought. Uh, my first thought was, that's too bad that they got downgraded. Um, and my second thought was, yeah, yeah. I mean, is it really going to cut into demand that they are printing more? And we have seen cases where printing more does hurt a brand. Uh, we only look need to look as far as TSR. Yeah. So that makes us then wonder, is it going to be a, a problem with, with D&D? And that's what the fireside chat then turned to was, well, look, magic is our first billion dollar brand. Now let's talk about D and D and so much interesting information uh, here. We could have a whole show just talking about what this fireside chat mentioned. Yeah. Um, what were some of the highlights for you, Deus? So we've heard now a couple of iterations of this talk that Cynthia Williams gave where she said, uh, DMs are 20% of the audience, but they're 90% of our sales. And we want to change that. And that's been said, it's fine to say it a few times, but it's now been said uh, a number of times. And, and in this case, and during this fireside chat was said in a, and we are doing things about this, right? And, and not only we're noting this, but this is our, our, when you say, what are we doing? This is our focus. Um, that the digital arena enables you to change that and as they said monetize D&D. &D. Uh, Williams said that the D&D is under monetized and that all sounds very capitalist and horrible and I'm not a capitalist so I, I agree with those sentiments. At the same time the rules of the game are you know this fireside chat is not for you and I. It's mm -hmm. for investors and you're trying right. to get people to spend lots of money on your stock and you have people who have large amounts of shares, as we saw with the whole Altafax business we reported on earlier, you have to keep those people happy, right? So saying things, it's under monetized as great growth potential, whatever, like some of that is just the language of the game of stockholder type fireside chats that you have to say these things. It doesn't mean that they are, that's the only brain that's on, right? <laughs> Side right. wizards. Uh, so it's important to note that, right? It doesn't mean that Chris Perkins is out there going, how will I monetize, right? Um, this is the language that is used in this context. But what it does say is they really believe D&D Beyond was a pivotal purchase that allows you to increase the amount that you can sell to non-DMs. And, of course, the huge question is, well, how will they do that? What are they going to offer? Right. And, and that that right. was not said, right? But that is that is their yeah. game. You know, how does D&D become a, a billion-dollar brand? The closest answer we have is you pivot off of D&D Beyond to offer things to players. Uh, and mm -hmm. get that other 80% of your play base to spend big money. Right. What will you offer? Will it work? We don't know. Yeah. And and the other part of this monetization is they are not talking specifically about the game. They are talking yeah. about the brand because immediately after they say that, they bring up Lord of the Rings and they bring up Game of Thrones. And they say, look at how, look at, these six million or six billion dollar uh brands how come D, D can't do that and it's not because game of thrones and lord of the rings has a role-playing game <laughs> it's because they have other avenues that are more revenue generation 
than a role-playing game is. Yeah. They can license out this to video games, which Wizards is heavily going to do. They do it via movies, which D&D is now going to do. They do it via streaming services, which now D&D and Magic the Gathering supposedly is going to do. Uh, so I don't panic. Normally, being not a capitalist as Teos, uh, but understanding that cap, you have to be able to work within a capitalist society in order to make things that you want to make. Uh, you know, I, I recognize when I see D&D needs to be more monetized, I freak out for a moment and duck and cover. And then I, I pull back and say, all right, let's see what this could possibly mean. And I also working for a company that makes art role-playing games. I definitely do, definitely do understand that D&D has come from a history of hours and hours and hours of fun spending very little money yeah yeah that's a, first, I mean, that's a problem it's yeah. not good for any of us right i mean it sounds great but right. it, but it really isn't because you have people who say my favorite thing in the world is D D. cool how does your spending on that compare to all these things that you like less oh yeah i don't spend anything for D D. that's a right. problem right because you, we need you to support it we need to be part of the Right. Yeah. I, I mean, we we don't need you to, but it's nice that if you do want this hobby to continue, we all recognize the fact that we need to support the people who make it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's why I would love to see more money spent on the game, more investment in the game itself. But we also have to recognize that a lot of the revenue that that Wizards of the Coast is looking to make is outside of the game itself. Now, digital not only gives them the opportunity to do that, it also gives them better numbers. Mm-hmm. When, when I see that 20% of the audience are DMs, but 90% of sales go to DMs, my first question is, how do you know that? How do you know who's buying books off Amazon? How do you know who's going into Barnes and Noble and purchasing the player's handbook, the DMG and the monster manual off the shelf? Do you know their DMs? How do you know their players? How digitizing gives you that ability to know, all right, I've asked this person in a survey, what they do. I can see what they purchase. Uh, I can see via my virtual tabletop that they are running a campaign as opposed to being a player in a campaign. Then you can get more, um, yeah, more trustworthy numbers. And that, well, yes and no. That worries me because it's interesting looking, for example, you know, Dragonlance came out this last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sales on it are not at the level one would expect for a recent release. So it's like, I don't know, 560 or something on Amazon. And so one of the things people said is, well, you have these direct sales now, right? Through D&D Beyond, you can deal these bundle purchases to which I go, yeah, but generally the people invested in things online aren't the majority of your customer base. So I don't know that I believe it, but maybe. And, and so it becomes confusing, right? But that's where you don't know 
enough, right? And 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 it becomes impossible to create a proper prediction understanding of the situation when you don't have when you assume that one data set you're looking at because it's a great data set is the data mm -hmm. set, right? Right. It is a data set. Sure. Uh, you right. know, so we we create like here they talk about um we're going to offer this is a quote, offer a lot more options to create rewarding experiences post-sale that help us unlock the type of recurring spending you see in digital games. And more than 70% of the revenue in digital game gaming essentially is post-sale. Um, mm. So, that, you know, that idea that, okay, you bought a book. Now we're offering you other things on D&D &D Beyond. Um, so maybe that's perfectly compatible uh, and and... But but we don't know. We don't know if it impacts what you buy at your local gaming store down or up, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know if you're right. robbing from one to fuel the other. It's yeah. it's really hard. And all you're looking at is that data set. And it's it's dangerous if you think, well, the data set is the truth. It's a data set. It's part of it. Yeah. Another interesting quote was, uh, the speed of digital means that we are able to expand from what is essentially a yearly book publishing model to our current spending environment. And we're offering content that we know fans want. So we're super excited about the type of opportunities we have with D&D to expand beyond the tabletop to read highly engaged multi-generational fans all to, to reach highly engaged multi-generational fans all around the globe. Uh, so, you know, we, we often have this discussion about, you know, digital versus conventional publishing, as my friend Dale Kingsmill would say, legacy media. Um, <laughs> and what does the game gain and what does the game lose? Not not the brand, not mm -hmm. the not the profits. What does the game gain or lose by having this more emphasis on digital over you know print publishing? Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, we're going to have to see that what they start offering, right? Like some people have said, well, maybe they're just talking about like, hey, you know, you love the Dragonlance game. Here's your Dragonlance T-shirt we're offering you. OK, that's completely mm -hmm. auxiliary, impacts nothing. That That's just an uptick in sales. I think we all feel good. Buying a T-shirt probably doesn't, you know, hurt your ability to buy the next, uh, uh, you know, the Planescape set when it comes out. Uh, but other things may, right? And 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 we saw that, for example, with fourth edition, where DDI Digital, right, was the mm -hmm. digital version of Dragon and Dungeon magazines, uh, and they began to provide lots and lots of player content. And I recall how everybody was so excited to get, you know, a whole new set of powers and a new set of feats and a new, you know, race ancestry species, and then it became this glut where kind of every week your class was changing. Your character mm -hmm. was changing and everybody started going, whoa, whoa. And it, that glut lasted to the end of fourth edition and hurt mm -hmm. through to the end of fourth edition. It was a, a lasting negative impact of too much glut for players and DMs that just clogged up the the, the works. Right. So I have no idea what they're going to offer. But but those those are concerns and, and things to be careful of, yeah. because it may seem like you're just going to have sales of, say, feats through the roof, but eventually, be, you know, oh, no, that one's online, right? And, and right. you know, did you get last week's thing? No, I'm still working on the, you know, set of player options yeah. from the week before that. And yeah. Now, however, mm -hmm. if this digital initiative for post-sale 
revenue generation is in the form of we we're going to give you the opportunity on our virtual tabletop to you know have green horns for your tiefling instead of red green horns oh. right i guess uh if you're green flame blade yeah. green flame there we go thank you uh can now be a red flame blade right. uh for 99 cents how many people are going to jump yeah. all over that that doesn't yeah. affect game design that doesn't affect the the mechanics that right. keep this game going it it avoids that glut when a game needs to at its core maintain its its simplicity to keep people coming in uh, there you are now talking about not messing with the game gaining gaining revenue and appealing to what the current generation of gamers not only wants but expects from their uh from their hobby from and, their media i have a thought about this that is that all of these things are worse when the number of players is low and better when the number of players are high meaning that if i have 20 people to take an exaggeratedly small number on the on the virtual tabletop that want to pay for purple hair the way purple hair sales have to work are going to be problematic for everybody because it has to create enough revenue from those 20 people that it's just not going to be healthy, right? Mm -hmm. But if I have millions playing online as games like, say, Fortnite have, then when you offer purple hair, it can be for a really cheap price and nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And the sales are big enough that everybody's winning, right? <laughs> <laughs> it feels right. like and this links to the overall that you know you can't stop thinking about the size of the audience and right. they had an interesting quote here that if the magic strategy so magic the card game is a deep single quadrant strategy uh the D, D strategy is a broad four quadrant strategy where we have this powerful brand that has similar awareness to lord of the rings harry potter and what they're talking about here is a single quadrant brand is one that has a narrow, passionate audience. And that's a specific quadrant. There are these four quadrants that represent different types of, of interactions between your brand and customers. And here they're talking about, you know, narrow, passionate audience. And but then you take something like D&D. &D, and I think it's Chris Cox that says that when he goes to a party and he talks about magic, a few people know what he's talking about when he talks mm -hmm. about D&D almost everybody knows what he's talking about, right? Because it is in all these quadrants. It's in all four quadrants and therefore can appeal to a wide number of people for very different reasons. So you can have the sort of Stranger Things appeal where you just want the T-shirt because you like the show, right? That can be, or, or Nike, right? How many people have a Nike something just because Nike's cool is the feeling you have, right? So you want to be in on it and you want to have that. And that's the kind of thing that can allow purple hair on the virtual tabletop to work really well and be non-intrusive because you have this very large audience that's fueling that right so the one needs the other i think yeah and when you talk about four quadrant brands you, you know you're talking about the the game itself you're talking about the movies and and you know visual entertainment you're talking about uh video games uh and you're talking about toys and knickknacks and sort of minis and and all of that stuff so as opposed to magic, D and D is definitely in a better position, as Teos just said, to uh 
to capitalize on that yeah. in in every way that the word capital uh <laughs> is defined because it does have that broader appeal and hopefully the D&D film will push it to the point where people do want to play you know do want the video games and do want the toys and do want the knickknacks but also want to play the game yeah right in, and in the a game remains world. what we love about it right exactly exactly so we will see and that yeah. will affect game design you know and, and uh, i'm glad to rob a few segments from or seconds from from what we'll talk about later to, to talk you right here because i think it's really interesting and, and critical there have been many times in dnd's history where the brand could or the game could have fallen apart mm -hmm. um and and destroyed what tabletop DD gaming was right um right. one was where the the company the copyrights were owned legally for tsr by by creditors and right. had they fallen under those things may have been sold piecemeal right to where mm -hmm. the game was fragmented and and not not joined and you couldn't write all of it um, there was the moment, um, when the OGL was being created and the original vision that was there and really the, the kernel of what Ryan Dancy was pushing was we don't need a D and D team writing the game anymore. We'll write three core books and third party publishers will do the rest and we'll, we'll barely own it and we'll only make the t-shirts. Right. And even with fifth edition, there was that sort of sentiment of maybe our sales really come from, you know, t-shirts and mugs and things like that. And then the game proved it could be so good as to create all of the energy and excitement we've seen. Right. And oh, lo and behold, the game actually is an important property. So there are always these moments that, that and there have been many right. in the history of the game where D&D &D was this close to somebody going like, yeah, stop making mm -hmm. that game or get rid of, you know, focus on this. Right. And, and, and there will be more. There will be more moments mm -hmm. when the game is threatened like this, right? Yeah. And there was such a sea change in what the game could be in terms of a revenue generator that now wizards of the coast is driving hasbro as opposed to the other way around which if you would ask me 20 10 5 3 years ago if that could ever happen i would say not in not in my lifetime yeah. and here here we are seeing it happening well i used to you know people used to say well, Hasbro, blah, blah, blah. And I did, look, Hasbro isn't doing anything with D&D. D&D operates on its own. And that was very true until just a couple of years ago. Um, right. It's changed dramatically, right? And some of that is because D&D finally got what it wanted to be a pillar, pillar brand. It was always pursuing it, never mm -hmm. getting it. And now it is. And so now it is. It's, it's all inexorable, right? To say Hasbro is to say Wizards, to say D&D. They're all talking to one another and, and they all have their fingers in their pies. Yeah, yeah. Whew. Going from a one quadrant strategy to a four quadrant strategy, let's talk <laughs> about Baldur's Gate 3, which now has a release date. Uh, Larian, the, com the company that was, I believe, purchased by Wizards of the Coast oh, and really? has been working. I, I, I thought so. Or maybe they I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong on that. I thought they were more directly tied to Wizards now than when this started, but they and Wizards of the Coast announced that the game will be coming out in August of 2023. When did the first beta version come out? 2020. So this has been going on for a bit. Uh, a new trailer has dropped that shows Minsk and Boo being part of the action. 
And they've also announced pre-orders for a collector's edition with everything from cloth maps to a diorama to a tadpole <laughs> key ring for the low, low price of $270. I had a moment when I imagined myself telling my wife, but I got this keychain and holding this like, you know, illithid tadpole yeah. that's supposed to go into your brain. And just <laughs> her expression would be priceless. Uh, I did confirm, by the way, Lorraine Studios was purchased by Wizards of the Coast. That's yep. right. I. I'm getting old, but I remembered that from somewhere deep in these recesses of this great matter. Well done. Yeah, I mean, I love yep. me a cloth map, not up to the tune of two hundred seventy dollars. Um, but yeah. uh, but you know, I'm glad this game is finally out uh, for everybody's sake, and I hope it's great. I I will probably try it, you know, um, because I, I did enjoy those kinds of games, and I have heard a lot of people saying that they enjoy, you know, mm -hmm. overall what the experience is for those who have done the pre-release. Um, so hopefully now that kind of you know the annoying bugs are gone i hope um, yeah. yeah i was excited to play it in 2020 and uh <laughs> now i am still you know having grown up on baldur's gate and baldur's gate 2 uh the the nostalgia is strong uh, and i just when it comes out i will probably take a look at it and we'll see how it goes we now have a manual of gainful exercise in real life this was a book from ad and d that I believe increased your constitution if you read it. And now it is a supplement on the DMs Guild by Steve Hoyne, I'm going to say. Uh, it provides actual workouts for you. And the workouts are organized according to your D&D subclasses. Uh, Teos, what else can you do with this I, I, manual? I saw this and I thought this is the coolest idea ever. Um, so you, you get to look up, you know, what, what you decide your subclass is, you know, are you more of a wizard? Are you a paladin? Uh, and what subclass under those classes? And then you can, in some cases, roll on tables to customize your workout from the available options. And it, it's really fun to see the creative way that Steve has taken these, these subclasses and clearly knows a lot about working out, uh, to create, you know, real life exercises you can do uh to stay healthy so i uh, highly recommend it it's three dollars 65 which on its own great price well worth it if you do like you know just a few push-ups a day that would be well worth it uh you'll be the fighter you meant you were meant to be but you can also get discount coupons directly on the dms guild page link is in our show notes uh including like 90 percent off and really high levels uh, if you need to, or if, if if that's the only level which you'll purchase, you know Steve has some instructions there. But but really cool. There are a number of, of levels of coupons that you can choose to to bring the price down significantly. I think that's a really smart way to have done it. Um, Steve was originally thinking pay what you want and and change. And I think this is a smart approach. You know, also the yeah. uh, I think you can see if not the entire product very close to it as a preview, so you know exactly what you're getting. Mm -hmm. Another uh, item on the DMs Guild to keep in mind is Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything coming to us from Dragonlance Nexus. So this product, which went up right after Spell or, uh, Dragonlance was released, has over 100 pages of content, which includes ancestry, subclasses, equipment, the pantheons of Kryn, a section on the ambient magic of Kryn, new magic weapons and items based on the setting and the, the books, uh, the history of the setting throughout the ages, the geography, a map of the setting and so much more. You also, if you purchase this, get Champions of Kryn, Chapter One, which is a level one 
adventure. And so all of that is a pretty nice value for $16.95. Uh, I looked at this and I thought, and we were just talking about the, you know, wizards making the core books and letting other people do the rest. You know, this is something made by the Dragonlance Nexus, which are, you know, super fans of Dragonlance. I could see, you know, this being the release that wizards uh did right right? it's got all of the things that the fans love about about dragonlance all fifth editionified for you and uh so if you are a dragonlance fan or even if you're just looking for an adventure um you can check it out on the dm scope yeah uh really neat I, i i love what this product aims to to provide it's already a silver seller and i'm sure it'll keep climbing And now we at Mastering Dungeons are going to get into our main topic. We are going to finish our discussion of the 1D&D playtest packet number three. Last time we went through the meat of the uh, packet, but we didn't get to the new epic boons or the updates to the rules glossary. So we are going to do the deepest of dives into the rest of this 1D&D packet content. Um, Neither Teos nor I are fans of Epic Boons in general. And so the three new Epic Boons they gave uh, were not, did not help us change our mind about Epic Boons. Yeah, and just to pull back a bit, I think the thing that that uh, I mean, it was funny. You know, we were asked by a listener question before One D and D even touched Epic Boons and, and changed them up. Uh, whether we, you know, what we thought about them, and we we both kind of said, well, they don't feel very epic. And then now they're the level twenty capstone feature. And I guess One D and D, as it releases packets, is also giving us a look at certain epic boons that uh, that are sort of class focused right they're they're in response to the class so for the cleric class they give us the epic boon of fate to add a d10 to someone else's d20 test boon of spell recall to cast a spell without expending a spell slot once and the boon of true sight to always have true sight at range 60 feet and i think these all show my problem with epic boons as a concept um and 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 then also is the idea of having feats to take these is they're not all the same power level, which mm. I think is fine when we're talking about an epic boon that is something that you might reward somebody with during an adventure just because. But they're just, they're the kind of thing that that it's like a weird, you know, imagine your class really was giving you this. This would be sort of a weird thing to get that wouldn't really, it, it in, in and of itself doesn't have a ton of flavor. You know, yes, in theory, the epic boon of fate can sort of represent that I know you're going to succeed, although you, of course, might still fail. Um, but there, but there, there's none of that structure that comes with a class feature that is what I love about class features, that it tells me what this class is supposed to do in the world and how it looks at the game and all of that. This is sort of like the flavorless <laughs> blah, <laughs> like, like, the, like if you wrote the worst class feature, right? It's sort of how I feel about right. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at the epic boon of true sight where you always have true sight on at 60 feet, right? One of the things that high level monsters would do is have abilities to not be seen, Mm -hmm. but that gets around that. So that's a possibly quite powerful ability. The epic boon of 
spell recall is you get to cast the spell without expending a spell slot once one time so you get basically an extra spell slot um the epic boon of fate you add a d10 to someone else's d20 test so that's the average of five having advantage averages out to a plus five so basically it's like giving someone advantage once uh totally not balanced and i think part of the problem is you call them epic when they're just things and i i don't mind that they're not powerful because when you get to 20th level you've got so much generally depending on your choices of character and and ancestry and subclass you probably have lots and lots and lots of options so i i don't necessarily need another option but i don't know it just it just doesn't yeah. i mean high level play is is ridiculous anyway as the game currently stands and has been for practically every edition sure. so fix that right? <laughs> fix fix yeah. high level play with with 1D D. And I would be happy. I would be overjoyed if you could fix high level play. Yeah. Uh, I, I think honestly that fifth edition had it better about the idea of sort of your capstone feature being a class feature that was fairly powerful. And I think if 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 what the team had done is balance those a bit more, because some mm -hmm. are really lame, hello Ranger, and some are great. Um, you know, balance that out so it feels like a pretty neat final power. Um and then what I'd rather have than all of that is something more like what AD&D and Basic had, where it was like the idea that you're going to get a keep or that you have this sort of influence on the world or something more along those lines to me would be more interesting, even if it was not super tangible, uh, if it was vague, if it was almost more like a background, right? If it was the idea that, um, you know, your wizard can access the the lore of of you know can can gain entry to any library anywhere and um you know has a great chance of coming up with information i don't even know right but those kinds of concepts like just conceptual interesting representing the fact that you've reached some pinnacle of your career rather than you know candy <laughs> yeah, yeah mechanical candy like i i want more yeah world integration type thing um, and and maybe that's a reason to to make that the capstone and, and move these things to 18th. But but currently, I just the only reason you're moving it to 18th is so you actually might see play in some rare situations because people still aren't reaching level 18 anyway. Um, yeah, we have thoughts. Yeah, we we do we do, and we're gonna have more thoughts as we talk about the changes or the updates to the rules glossary. Mm -hmm. um, so what was in the rules glossary? Here's a breakdown. Um, action required. So Wizards of the Coast in the packet clarified that an ability check requires an action unless a rule says otherwise. A DM, of course, can override this requirement and say it can be done with a bonus action or with no action. And your I thought there, Teos. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think that needed to be said. It probably... So it needed to be said because otherwise it was sounding like one D&D was telling you hey, the investigate action is an action, end of story, and we have a feat that makes it, you know, faster, so it's got to be. So I like that they're saying, hey, DMs, you can still change this up. I do find that this is almost like you're, you're I don't like the codification of it where it falls. I would rather that the part where it teaches you how to play tell you this 
-hmm. and that we don't need this action required section. Um, I, I just, it feels like a weird instructional appendices type approach rather than what flow, what the game masters need to know to run a good game, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think it, it's better to clarify, as you said, early in the, in the thing and say, listen, around to six seconds, if it takes uh, most of the six seconds for you to do something, it should be an action. Mm -hmm. And I, I am enraged. This is my enraged face. <laughs> I am enraged when it says, or it can be done with a bonus action. Yeah. I do not ever want a DM to be saying, well, you can do that as a bonus action. Bonus actions are in the game for a very specific reason. And when we talk about uh, next week, when we talk about chapter nine, unless something uh, amazing comes up that we need to push it out further to talk, bonus actions are what allow classes to differentiate themselves from each other. Uh, action, you can hit, you can move, and that's the game. Yeah. Now, bonus actions make a monk a monk because they can use it to take extra attacks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it makes clerics clerics because they can maybe use the bonus action to heal while still doing other things. Bonus actions make a paladin a paladin. Bonus actions can make a rogue a rogue. And to just to say, well, you can do this other little thing that I put in the adventure. Yeah, just do it as a bonus action instead. Then you're not allowing the, the cleric to be a cleric. You're not allowing the rogue to be a rogue. You're not allowing the monk to be a monk. Uh, and yeah. I well, don't I, want them messing around with that. I love your purest answer because what I also immediately think is, well, Tasha's and other similar places have also chucked endless amounts of as a bonus action, you can do this, right? And feats have done that. And so the mm -hmm. game is becoming problematic because one of the other reasons why bonus actions were represented the way that you very, very well captured is that concept of we do not want to bog down the action economy. So you have a very specific thing that your character does with its bonus action. It's not a grab bag of tricks as it was in fourth edition or third edition where any spell mm -hmm. could be quickened or lots of magic items had special, you know, minor action rioters and things like that. The idea right. is we're freeing up that space. Why? Because the space should be, your brain should be doing creative things and fun things, mm -hmm. not just, you know, ticking off, I need to use all of my action types. As you start right. seeing all of these ways to use your reaction, all these used to use your bonus, all, right? Then the game becomes super bogged down. And now it's even worse when you say, well, you know, to disarm the trap that's going to murder all of you in two rounds, you need to use your bonus actions and also still do the things you need to do in this encounter. And and that doesn't function, right? And I and I wish the rules, which is also why, you know, in a glossary type thing like this, you can't explain that. But in running the game, which we, yep. like we were talking about last time, isn't really a good chapter to do that. If you did that properly you could explain this, right? If, if you do allow a bonus action, it needs to be a way that you could do it because here's the reality. Half your characters don't want to do that, right? And yep. here's why it yep. hurts them and you need to be aware of that. Right. <laughs> Talk, tell me about the difficulty class table. So they kind of returned it to the 2014 version. All of those DCs are there. They all mean the same thing. They start with five. Um, I think the wording is better. They say, you know, it's rarely worth calling for a check if the DC is as low as five. Um, I think that's good because you do want, there are some times, well, 
there are some times when you want people to roll because rolling is engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and, and it's good to just understand what those numbers mean, the, the, the kind of reality check of them. What'd you think? Mm -hmm. uh, I like I like the wording too, but I still, I still want the descriptors to change. I want DC five to be easy because something that is very easy mm. by definition should not require a check. Uh, and it, it's a matter of semantics, but mm -hmm. it's important semantics to me. And, you know, fate has that scale, that ladder that have great definitions to help you as the game master set what the, the difficulty will be. So I want five to be very easy. Um, and then that is something you can avoid. I, then I want, you know, I want 10 to to move up and I want everything to move up. And then, you know, call some, instead of calling something impossible, say very hard and then nearly impossible at the end of this. And that helps me get things set in the proper way. But to say, you know, to say that something that's uh, DC 10 is easy doesn't doesn't make any sense to me yeah. when if unless yeah. somebody is trained in it or naturally adept at it yeah. they would fail 50 percent of the time that's not easy that's not easy right yeah you would never try that if that's what <laughs> if half the time right. you're going to fail you generally don't try those things right uh right i would never do a carpentry job or anything right? um yeah. so yeah i agreed with you and the other thing that i would add is is that i want uh ex instructions for the dm on when to call for checks and how to use that right because there are times mm -hmm. when i have someone roll for what is theoretically a five but depending on how, how you roll i am giving you additional information that's coming out of my brain right mm -hmm. i'm choosing on the fly what to tell you based on your role because cool you know something right and at the very least when you roll that five if that's the best thing you can do uh then i'm just giving you some basics Right. Mm -hmm. And that's an yeah. art that, that no table can capture, but is super critical to maintaining engagement and keeping players stimulated, I think. I I agree. You have some thoughts on the aid spell, mm. I know. You know, the aid spell is <laughs> tricky. On one hand, I love it because it is different than other spells. Uh, you know, what it does is it raises the ceiling of your hit points for three players. That's a 2014 version. The new version handles six characters and instead of raising your maximum HPs, it gives you temporary hit points because wizards love temporary hit points. Um, so, you know, this becomes another, you know, oh, wait, I've got temporary hit points from you. No, I do, you know. Um, and then, you know, as you upcast it, you get more attempts. Uh, I, aid is problematic because when you, say, spend two fifth level spell slots, you have cast I win for your party. The maximum number of hit points that you just increased everybody by is enough that really the game should not be able to threaten you as, as it's normally written, right? A published product, whatever. Like, So you kind of cast a win. However, you have done so in a way that's very unobtrusive to the game. Like mm -hmm. the DM will probably not notice it uh, other than the fact that you're not dying. They will, you know, they still get to deal damage to you. It, it probably mm -hmm. still feels good to them. So I don't have the world's worst problem with aid. I would just want to tweak it to have lower values when you upcast it. So it's not breaking the game, turning it into temps. Okay. Just now this is a useless spell or something else is useless. It's just, there are too many temps <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. and it's still a problem because it can be a lot of temps and, and it, the whole party. Yeah. Yeah. So I dislike this intensely. 
This is my disliking intensely face. <laughs> uh, we also get uh, revised arcane spell lists, primal spell lists, and divine spell lists. Um, armor training. This is now the new name for armor proficiency. And if you wear armor and aren't trained, you have disadvantage on any D20 test involving strength or dex. Uh, you can't get a shield AC bonus if you lack training with the shield. Uh, can you get the magical bonus for the shield? Huh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, a previous uh, sage advice had sort of said yes, right? That you can strap a magic shield to your back as a wizard and get that bonus to AC of you know, plus X. Um, so I think that would be nice to clarify. Mm -hmm. uh, the attack action. Tell me about this. So they have revised this to talk about an, an, to, to address a number of little tweak issues that, that weren't super clear. Um, they still differentiate between weapon and unarmed strike. So there's two still two different things. And you can equip or unequip a weapon before or after each attack you make as part of the attack action, which is an interesting Thing. You can also move in between attacks if you have a feature that gives you multiple attacks. Okay, so help me out here. Let's assume that you have something like the duelist ability where you can add an, add one to your AC if you're wielding a one-handed weapon. So I'm a fighter with multiple attacks mm -hmm. in, with, with each attack action. So could I wield a rapier at the start of my turn? And then it's, okay, it's my turn. I'm going to sheathe my rapier, pull out my greatsword, get a couple of attacks with that, and then re-equip my rapier to get the bonus to my armor class. Yeah, if you had enough attacks, you could you could do that in between, right? So I'm gonna I'm going to make an attack. I switch to my greatsword. I make another greatsword attack. Now I've got a third attack. Well now I can swap back to my rapier. Or no, I could, could, could even do it after. So yeah, so you could even with two attacks, mm -hmm. you could just then switch back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing we don't need in the game. Uh, as as much fun as much yeah. fun as it can be for uh -huh. tactical players, I, and I get that I get that fun. Sometimes I am that player. Uh -huh. uh, we don't need that in the base version of sixth edition or one D and D or whatever it ends up being called. Uh, have have let the fun be in the rolling of the dice, the telling of the story, uh, the outcome of the story based on choices and die rolls. Uh, let's let's not get into that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, and I think in there you would have to drop something because at some point it's either before or after that you're doing one of these. So at some point, you know, you're probably going to drop your axe to be able to pull your rapier, um, unless you want to do an attack with it. And yeah, I don't know, but but it it yeah, I agree with you. It's it's the finicky type of stuff that just gets in the way of good game. No, yep. thank you. A critical hit rules go back to their 2014 version. Yeah. Fine with that. Didn't have a problem with the the five e rule. Uh, banishment spell has provided to have the have the range, h a l v e. I, sorry, my accent there. Halve the range. Uh, <laughs> the target now gets a save at the end of each of its turns, and if the spell lasts for more than one minute, and the target is of a certain type, it goes to a random plane associated with its creature type. That last part should never happen which is a bit weird uh but yeah I kept that in i think just to honor the origins of the spell which were to actually take a thing to another plane yeah can, can we just get rid of this spell completely i'm fine with that too 
I mean, uh, the reality uh, is that hold person, all these kinds of things sort of don't right. work. As soon as you make them save at the end of each turn, they're almost not worth casting because you're better off killing the thing. Removing it fully from the map is helpful uh, because you can, you know, end things that are line of sight effects and, and mm -hmm. concentration stuff can, can go away. So there's some benefit to it that I could see this spell still being chosen. Um, yeah. I certainly don't like the original version, so I'm, I'm, I'm better with this. But yeah, in general, I don't want these kinds of spells to be in this edition. Yeah. I, you know, if what I, for these kinds of things, if they were to be in the game, I would want them to almost be like they were in previous editions where you'd roll dice to see how long they last. And that mm -hmm. erratic nature of them made things uh, more interesting and, and less dependable. So you didn't know how good the spell was when you cast it. But it's still problematic. So, yeah. Uh, how about bark skin? It uh, grants temporary hit points instead of armor class and can be upcast to include more targets. So, bark skin is now aid, but for uh, druids. Let's move on. <laughs> but but as a bonus action and with a different duration. All right. Uh, let's see. Dazed. Dazed is a new condition. That was previously in 4e. You can take a move or an action, but not both. And you can't use your bonus actions or reactions. Hmm. You know, we added Dazed back in the Grim Hollow mm -hmm. campaign guide. And what it did was it did not it disallowed concentrating on spells. Mm. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. Uh that makes Dazed effects powerful just in and of, in and of themselves. I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, I think that. Um, MCDM also has the the day's action so it's clearly something that's mm -hmm. that's popular and, and I think it plays a nice role it's great because it 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 says a lot of things about how your character can't quite be themselves without being you know domination or things like that yeah I I also I don't remember where I saw it, it might have been in Grim Hollow when you come back from zero hit points whether it be through healing or uh, you know resting the first round that you're back, you're dazed. Mm. I think that's pretty cool. That's cool. And yeah, and in, in, in Grim Hollow, cool. if you lose concentration on a spell through damage, you are also dazed. Um, which I thought was really cool. cool. Now see, yeah. those are the those are the rules I like. Um, you know, just add these little these little tweaks. They don't complicate the game overly much, but they make the tactical side of things a little more interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. Um, Tell me about difficult terrain. I mean, so it's it's not bad. It, it's pretty much what you'd expect. But the only thing is it still has things that um, any creature that isn't tiny impacts your, it counts as difficult terrain uh, or impacts your movement. So that means that you can't move through your fellow party members, which just means we have to get rid of all five foot corridors. Um but there are also some other pieces in there, like it refers to ice or furniture and, and how that impacts. So, yeah, good. A little more information for, for DMs. Uh, the exhausted condition. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's pretty much what we had last time. Long rest removes one level. And, it you know, you, you have sort of this uh, minus one for exhaustion level on D20 rolls. Uh, grappled. This is this is still I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. And it's. I have a character in my home game now who is a grappler, um, who grapples multiple players because he's a loxodon, so he has a trunk, and he's a monk, uh, and so yeah. it's getting sort of weird. So, 
I, but I'm I'm actually thinking of going to these rules oh. to make what he's doing a little more interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you're grappled, your speed is zero. You have disadvantage on attack rolls against anyone other than your grappler. Uh, the grappler can move you, but has the slowed condition. Unless you are tiny or two sizes smaller than the grappler, the escape is a dex or strength saving throw against the escape DC. Uh the unarmed strike definition says that when you unarmed strike, you can deal damage or shove or grab shove or grapple. So when you grapple, the escape is eight plus your strength modifier plus your proficiency bonus. And the target can't be more than one size larger, and you need a free hand to grapple. This what people always try to do is move something that they're grappling without moving themselves. Mm. And I can, there's no rule that I can find at least for saying how that works. And so I'm, I'm always tempted to like, say, if you move someone with you, you only worry about your movement. But if you're trying to move something around you while you're not moving each five feet that you move, the creature also counts as your movement. Seems and yeah. yeah, but I think something like that needs to be said, because otherwise you get people grappling and then like, especially if they have a spell on them or they're a, a species that's large, then you can end up like moving someone a good distance uh, without actually costing you any movement. And I think I'm, I could be wrong about this, but I feel like in third edition, I don't remember fourth, I feel like you went into their square when you grappled them. Mm -hmm. And that's another way you could do that. If you say, well, you're both in your in the same square, you know, as you're all sort of mm -hmm. um, and therefore that's where, you know, where you move them is where you are as well. Right. Because you, you have yeah. to be. That's another possible way to address it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the guidance spell is now a reaction when someone within 10 feet of you fails an ability check. Yeah, I'd rather not be just failure because there are times when you want to boost the result and just let me do that. Don't tell me I can't because it didn't fail. Mm. Okay. Uh, the help action. You must be proficient to help an ally uh, who can see or hear you. Uh, you can distract an enemy within five feet of you, grant, granting advantage to the next attack roll by an ally. We're going to talk about a lot of this next yeah. week. Yeah. The key thing here is that it forces you to be proficient. So you're really limiting when you can help someone um mm -hmm. so if if someone's doing you know disabling a trap and then whatever that you're saying that is required for the role well you must have it to help them mm -hmm. it's interesting. uh i'm gonna skip a few here because literally yeah. there's going to be a lot of discussion about these next week um what do you think about the influence action and where it is I hate it. It's uh, theoretically <laughs> better i guess so what they did is they revised it uh to try to say that the dc is the higher of the creature's intelligence or 15 and if it succeeds and the creature does as you ask but again with this whole it's not mind control it's that you're swaying it i still just think all of this is not how uh, what we want to be teaching dms to do um it's great for someone to make a role to try to influence another creature I don't think there should be some stated value that causes it to work. And I think we should just teach DMs to make judgment calls because that's what good judgment calls yeah. do. They're good DMs do. Right. And we see, you know, I was watching Act Inc. Uh, game 
And there were roles where I don't think the person rolled a success and Jeremy called it a success. Why? Because that's what's awesome and it was good enough. And, and man, we have those right. moments all the time, right? And when you set these kinds of things where what the game's trying to do is say 15 some magic number. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. And you're getting in the way of the game when you try to tell players a 15 will succeed. No, you know, I'll let you know. (laughs) And I'll make it fun for you. Don't worry, but I'll let you know. I'm not going to, you know, there's no number. I feel like I feel like if you've DM'd enough that you you sort of ignore the game. And I would rather have the game tell me where I should ignore the game Mm -hmm. or better yet. Don't even tell me anything. Give me guidance, but don't say what a rule is. If it's generally better for me to ignore the rule. Yeah. 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 Uh, So that was the influence action long rest. It was the same as the previous unearthed arcana packet with the addition of removing one level of exhaustion. It also now says that if your rest is interrupted, you can resume it, but must take an extra hour of rest. Yeah. And And then then two changes. Mm -hmm. After you. Ah, The prayer of healing spell. Uh, Instead of affecting six creatures, it now is your spell casting ability number of creatures. Additionally, you can't affect a creature with this spell again until they finish a long rest. And all this makes you go, whoa, whoa, was this spell that powerful? Um, I don't, these are kind of tweaks that I just go, really? Okay. Uh, Spiritual weapon now requires concentration. And what you hear (laughs) in the background is the sound of every cleric player crying over this change because it was such a popular spell because of the fact that it didn't require concentration. So you could just have this extra attack. I did appreciate, this is a case where listening to the video where Jeremy Crawford talked about the change was helpful. And that he was saying, surprisingly, that his concern was mostly along the lines of the action economy. And that you're you're adding this always, you know, a second attack that's happening here. And you're moving your spiritual weapon around and all this on top of everything else you're doing in your round. So it's sort of too much. And from that perspective, yeah, I agree that that is. But then I look at everything else that's clogging up the action economy. And to me, this was quite minor. Um, Right. So, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's one of those things that if you make it concentration, does it just suddenly become no one's casting it? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a spell that became so rote that if you play uh, with or as a cleric for more than a few sessions, it just becomes second nature of, oh, yeah, spiritual weapon. And it's always going to, I'm always going to be setting it off on my bonus. So there we go. But as a new player, it definitely is something that is complicated because uh, you have to keep track of it. You have to remember it's there. You have to remember its location. So, yeah, I can I can see that. That's kind of it. There are a few other bits, but nothing too critical. The survey is supposed to be the December 21st. Uh, every survey date so far has been pushed back, so <laughs> we'll see. Um, we'll see if that happens. Yeah, I'm excited for when it comes out to see if this survey is any better than the previous surveys. Cool. Yep. We will find out. So we have taken a little extra time, but we have talked about the full playtest packet for 1D&D, packet three. And we will now close this shop down 
we will turn the lights off, but we will thank all the patrons who let us turn them back on. Thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters. In our show notes, we give a special shout out to our Master of Realms patrons. And for our Masters of the Multiverse, we give you this special shout out. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben F., Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Eric Mengi, Falcon Neal, Drago Russo, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville of the Planagia RPG setting, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and John Wilson. Thank you, patrons, and thank you to everyone listening. Um, if you would like to throw Teos and I a few cents to keep this show as crisp and professional as you, as we hope it might be at some point, <laughs> please consider supporting the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash mastering dnd and teos is now all buttoned up <laughs> very professional where can people find your professional self on the internet uh find me at alphastream.org from there you can reach my twitter and other efforts mastodon alphastream at dice.camp and uh i sometimes check twitter how about you sean uh you can still find me using twitter since i am old school mm-hmm at Sean Merwin, or the podcast at Mastering D&D. Mastodon is now also hosting uh, our show at Dice.Camp. You can join our community and ask questions via the Patreon. And we are on YouTube with the show nicely divided up into our news segment and our main segment. Uh, You can leave comments there at the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos... We have finished yet another show. So what are we going to do now? Let's go monetize some monsters, Sean. I like it. I want a blue-haired ogre. Ak Inc. is now the standard. (laughs) Ha ha ha!